Welcome to Public Intellectual. Public Intellectual is a podcast supported solely by its listeners, and if you would like to become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash publicintellectual, and for $5 a month, get access to bonus episodes, a blog, and information about the relaunch of the Daphne Awards, our award for the best book of 50 years ago. Go to patreon.com slash publicintellectual. Today is the first episode in a new series about life in Berlin. Not just Berlin, but the new urban age. So we'll be speaking with academics, journalists, writers, and other figures about housing issues and income inequality, how to create networks when we're all increasingly mobile, issues of gentrification and community, and the myth that of city builds for itself. We'll be starting the discussion today with an interview with Talia Blockland, a professor at Humboldt University here in Berlin and the author of Community as Urban Practice. As she talks about in the interview that follows, she believes community is a verb, not a noun. It is something that we choose to do. It is not a network that we find ourselves in. So we'll be talking about how Berlin specifically deals with issues of conflict between people who are rooted here, who are native to the area, and then the increasing population of the rootless, whether that be expats or migrants or refugees, and some of the issues of building a networked city with increasingly mobile populations and an increasing difficulty in integration. I was struck by something you wrote in the book about community often being a an act of boundary work and exclusion, which is um, obviously not how sort of politicians talk about community. They sort of talk about it in this very nostalgic way of um, uh, something that can prevent crime or drug use or that sort of things. But um, but often these very homogenous, tightly networked neighborhoods developed because people weren't allowed to integrate into larger communities. Like Chinatown exists because the Chinese weren't wanted elsewhere. Um, so can you talk a little bit about sort of the boundary work and exclusionary work of community? Because it's not something that people really write about in that way. Well, implicitly politicians, of course, are saying that that's what it's about when they say that community is a way of, you know, increasing sense of community among residents is a way of reducing crime, then they're effectively, effectively saying we're excluding the criminals, right? Or those people were being labeled no longer as residents, but as urban youth or urban criminals. So there is a way in which um, even politicians talk about exclusions all the time when they talk about community. Um, but I understand what you mean. And then I think it's a matter of that, um, as a sociologist, I'm more interested in the ways in which um, the social fabric of the city uh, can be understood and therefore, I'm less interested in um, whether community is a good thing or a bad thing or whether it produces processes that 
can affect uh, people negatively or positively. So the statement that it is exclusionary is not a political statement in the sense that it's against some sort of notion of niceness and collectivity and all these kind of things. But it is a statement that points out that sociologically speaking, any form of turning together also means that you're drawing a boundary to those who are not turning inside. So when a group of people has a particular perspective on, say, what a kindergarten needs to be, and they decide to start their own kindergarten, which is very common in Berlin, So then, which is where I work, right? So where some of my examples come from. So it's very, it's very strongly a way in which um, people then say, okay, let's do this together because we believe in the same thing. But in fact, the moment that you organize a kindergarten that only has vegan food and you want parents to admit or to commit themselves to eating vegan, to eating vegan when they bring their child, you assume a lot of knowledge of what vegan is and why it's important and so on, which is even stronger, of course, with more sort of pedagogical concepts. And then there is a community, there's a form of creating a process of togetherness and, you know, form of, of sharing some ideals and, and a normalcy or, or norms and values that inherently also has exclusionary consequences. You know, I mean, when politicians talk about a sort of um, problematic or difficult community, they're often talking about sort of failures to integrate, right? So a, a community that, or a population that comes within, uh, comes to a city, um, and then retains its, its own customs and language and so on and so forth. Um, but it seems like that idea of integration goes both ways. Like the, certainly cities have a hostile reaction to, uh, you know, failure to integrate is often a failure both on both sides. Uh, integration is a very different concept from community, right? There, um, integration, um, actually, it's really difficult to see what in, what not being integrated looks like because um, if you take like um, a petty criminal or someone who does small things defined as crime, but in the general public in a public park in the city, say selling marijuana or something, and he has no residential status and comes from Africa, every moment he's being stopped by the police, he's integrated because there's a connection directly between this particular person and the state. So this idea of colonies of people that have no connection to mainstream society is a little problematic in that sense of using integration because what is it not to be integrated? And is there, I think I've written an article years, years ago in which I've said there's more integration between people that fight in a war and um, in Kosovo, I think it was at the time, than there is between people living in the Bronx and living in Manhattan. In that sense, there is a spatial segregation and a social segregation of people turning in specific circles, which the upper middle classes do as much as your example of the Chinese uh, people that move from China to other countries or people that from, move from any place to another place. There isn't there is always this kind of bubbles in each in each city of people being inwardly oriented, and I don't think that's more the case with migrants than it is with uh, with people with migration background than it is with others. But there is another level, which I explicitly say in the book, that's what the book is not about, which is the level of the nation state. And so part of these questions of integration of migrants are about integration in the project of the nation state, and that's not what the book is about. It's very much about the everyday practices of doing community. Yeah, because you, you say explicitly in the book that community is a verb, that it's treated as if it's just like a, a, a space that you inhabit, but it's actually a series of actions that you take. Yeah. Yeah. That's correct. As a, um, um, 
you know, I, I used to live in Berlin and, and certainly, um, so I'm very aware of the kind of weird tensions in this city. So to talk about Berlin specifically, you talk about these sort of two different uh, groups in a city, those who have roots, as in people who are sort of grounded in a place over time, and then people who have roots who are able to sort of um, come and go as they please. Because I don't think the, the it's not a contrast between people that are rooted in the sense of, you know, and uh, I think it's two different forms of um, doing community. And one is more long-term in the same place, but the suggestion of people who are able to move around suggests that I think some of the people that are now trying to settle down in this city after the refugee crisis, uh, you cannot say that they were able. Uh, they, ha they, they in practice have diaspora communities and communities of practice that goes beyond, uh, that are transnational and go, they are no longer connected to one particular place, but the abling is, we should avoid the contrast between, oh, there's the sort of cosmopolitan modern I don't know, podcast producing artists that hops around the world. And that's the rootus, the, 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 the way the people that are, that are not so rooted. And then we have the traditional people who are sort of rooted and stay in one place. So I don't want to make that a category of people. It really is a category of doing practices. Yeah. Um, and there is sort of, um, a distinct difference between, and even in the, in the language that we use for um, these two different groups, like people who are sort of moving around by choice and people who are move, being moved around by circumstance, sort of, you know, um, the the people who have sort of money and ability um, are referred to as, as, you know, expats, or which has a sort of glamorous tone to it. And then everybody else is a migrant, right, which has a sort of very um, derogatory uh uh, tone to the, to the word. Um, but so Berlin is obviously like dealing with sort of both, um, a heavy in, influx of both of these groups of, of the sort of expats and the migrants. Um, and it seems like people talk about the migrant group as the major sort of antagonistic force, but I feel like the expats also have a distinct, um, impact on the city. I guess they do, but it isn't necessarily something that um that I wanted to theorize about because I didn't want to theorize about categories of people. I wanted to theorize about pract categories of practices. And the practice of doing community in the sense of um being having fluid ways of encounters rather than long durable ties, having new um, connections in particular places all the time and feeling completely comfortable and at home in places that are actually you don't have a very deep understanding of but you have an understanding of that works for you that these kind of practices that these people that move around a lot don't necessarily have no community and I wanted to move away from the model that there is this contrast between uh, and having rooted having been rooted in the sense of we are not trees and to move is 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 a positive thing i don't want to label it as positive as negative but i wanted to move away from this idea that community means tradition being in one place being this the sort of idea that we do have when we talk about 19th century working class communities or when we talk about village communities there's always this idea that people have been there forever and that this way creates and of course this exists and there's no way of saying it's not important or or to devalue it in any way not at all but it's not what and this is where politicians i think often make an 
an approach that as a sociologist I would not take, which is where they say if that type of community is not there, if there is no locally bounded sense of we are in this all together and it's not lo located, like physically located in a site, then, the, then, then these people don't have community. And there's repair to be done. And I wanted to argue with that. And there's always there people that feel excluded and people that are isolated. In, in very early, earlier book in Urban Bonds in 2003, I've sort of showed how, I've tried to show how different people have different types of personal networks. And there is people that live in strong isolation. It's not that I'm claiming everybody has a community, but that this understanding of community needs to change a little bit. Because if we stick to this old fashioned way of seeing community linked stably only to one particular place, then, then we cannot think about the social fabric of the city. And, and this is partly, I think, because the social fabric of the city is very long, very often understood as things that are like a cloth that's knitted. Where the, where the ties between people are, they're knitted together and they're stable and they be ever, they, they will be forever there. And if they're not, then we have no, then there's no social infrastructure. Then there's no sort of, um, fabric to the city. Then we have a problem. Then it's disintegrated and so on. And I wanted to sort of play around a little bit with this metaphor of a cloth that's woven where the threads are not actually connected together in the sense that they're knitted, but they kind of smoothly sometimes not so smoothly, but at least they lie next to each other. And that can also provide a sense of understanding of public familiarity, also the sort of atmosphere where you recognize other people and you know what their place is in the setting where you are, even though you may never speak to them or you may not have personal ties with them. Yeah, because it's nostalgic in the way the word community gets nostalgic in the way of like, um, if somebody... It, like people talk about the social fabric breaking down because you don't know your neighbor's name or whatever. Um, and you, you, you maybe like, uh, uh, move around from neighborhood to neighborhood and, and don't have these sort of, um, in-person logistical connections, right? That are based on, uh, where you are on the earth. Um, so can we talk a little bit about expanding the notion of, of community about how people are sort of responding to um, this increased mobility, um, and how that changes how people find a sense of community. That's an empirical question. <laughs> sure. It is a question where you would need to go outside and ask people, uh, how, how they, how they do that. Um, what struck me, I was, I, I lived in the States a couple of years ago. Um, in, in, uh, in a small, uh, town in, uh, in, uh, New England, and it was a college town, and there was an area in that city where I think every rental was just for a few months because people moved in and in and in. And I had my daughter at the time who was a, about a year old, and immediately I had ties to people where we went to a play group, where we met in the park, and they because there was a lot of academic women with very small children that were not from the place. And we all had the same needs. We needed to find ways of connecting so we weren't bored just sitting with our only child in this strange country in a strange apartment. So you see that this idea that you need long-term in order to start being personal is not necessarily... It's not true. It's not necessarily true. So when people don't, do not know their neighbors, it isn't because we generally don't know our neighbors anymore, but apparently the idea that the social ties that you need either for instrumental reasons or the social ties that you wish for, for reasons of identification and sense of belonging and so on, 
don't necessarily have to be next door. And Philip Abrams has says, said in a book in 1986, if I'm not mistaken, um, he once said, the only thing that distinguishes neighbors from other social ties is that they live next door. They're not friends, they're not family, they're not a type. And yet in everyday speech, we always say, oh, family, neighbors, friends, or family, friends, neighbors. But it's not like that. Neighbors are just the people who live next door. So sometimes, you know, you can develop very strong relationships with them. Sometimes there's just a very, um, no, um, brief contact. Going back to your questions about expats in Berlin, I do think that there is something specific to the way in which this concentrates in very specific parts of the city that aren't even that interesting, I would say, but they're seen as hype and, and, and popular and whatever, because, um, the, the high turnover rates of many people in one particular building creates a sense you can hardly keep up, right? So, and that creates a sense of, it isn't about knowing your neighbors, but it's about knowing about them. And I think a sense of unruhe, uh, not being quite, um, uh, a sense of, of uh, irritation or, or nervousness emerges for people in cities when they cannot assess who it is that they're dealing with. So this, what is not good for any, um, it's not about being good, but what, what, as if I were to look at this from a more political perspective, what I don't think is good for a neighborhood is when the turnover rates of residences and especially also the uh, Airbnb, which I think is, is, is a very specific problem in this context, is that you go into your apartment, you go into your apartment block, you open the door in the hallway and there's this guy standing there or there's this woman standing there. And for whatever reason, you think she's suspicious, but you don't know who she is. She don't know if she lives there, and she may turn out to be a tourist in the Airbnb left, right, or above from you. And I think that sense of not knowing is very different from knowing, ah, that's the, I hear this noise. I know that that's the drug dealer who just came home from his late shift, right? That is, I'm not saying it's pleasant necessarily to live in those conditions, but there is a sense in which that, and this is a very much seen in work I did in more deprived neighborhoods, that that is, it's not the problem what people do. The problem emerges when you don't know what they do. Right. When you have no idea how to assess public strangers. Yeah, there was um, this uh, story in the New York Times uh, last week about a, a shooting in uh, New York where a um, a man was killed by the police, an unarmed man was killed by the police. Um, and he was somebody who was, um, uh, not that he behaved erratically, but he behaved kind of strangely and was on the street all the time. And everybody who sort of lived, most of the people who lived in that neighborhood had interacted with him at one time or another and knew that he was harmless and the police knew him. Um, but the police who were called on a nuisance call and said, somebody said that he was waving a gun around when he wasn't. And then the police uh, shot him and the police didn't know him. Um, and so then it became like this larger conversation of, um, yeah, displacement in, in a community of, of what the dangers are and when you can't place a person in their context, when you're just sort of encountering somebody who acts differently and then you call the police on them and then the police shoots them. Um, so yeah, I do feel like that's a really sort of, um, interesting and difficult, um, problem with this era of, of always being sort of taken out of your context. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think also that there is a historical development there because as our radius to move and everybody's radius, you know, because people take the train, take the subway, go to other places. So as that radius has increased and there, there's, and especially also as life rhythms are no longer so synchronized, no, when everybody works at the textile industry factory in the neighborhood, you go, you have this kind of rhythm of the city that is the same for everyone with stores opening 24 hours, people working night shifts, this entire move towards a more, and the digital economy to these changes in labor affects the way we affects the rhythm of the city and it may new york may always have been a 24 hour city but it was 24 hours divided up very specifically by who was the night worker and who was not and, and this this merging of this div emerging diversity of those kind of rhythms in the city i think affects these things too so there's a lot of aspects that have to do something with mobility but not just with residential mobility or with tourism or these kind of things but also with live rhythms becoming more uh, desynchronized uh, than they used to be um sociologists should never say they should used to be they should always specify till when but say up till then the the post um uh, post fortist uh, production times or after the 19 mid 1950s early 1960s and and the other aspect i think of um of this question of uh, this this incidence of this kind of shooting is, um, and I'm sure the New York Times has spoken about that, is the addressing the ways in which we categorize other people when we have no other information. Mm -hmm. Where I remember doing this work in New Haven where I did a research project and a housing project, um, and I was with this guy, um, and we wanted to go to downtown New Haven, and the shortcut would be through a park. And they would say, well, he wasn't going to go through the park because people living around the park called the cops on suspicious elements, mm -hmm. which people at the park also would confirm that that's what they did. And being a black young man was a suspicious element, and then you cannot trust the police, so you rather take the long way because you don't know what's going to happen. So these forms of categorization and forms of racism um, need to be immediately part of that conversation, I think. Yeah, and it seems like the the institutions that are uh, a part, part of the city, whether that be the police force or, you know, transportation or whatever, seem very, um, haven't caught up with the new ways of of living, basically. Like, it, it seems like there's a lag between um, um Right. Well, just how, how the, uh, sort of things are structured and how they actually sort of are, are existing. Like the evolution is happening too fast. And so, uh, these things like the police force are, are, are causing more chaos because they're sort of operating in a way of like, I don't know. My thought is like sort of only half formed and I'm sort of struggling a little bit. But, um, but, uh, there, yeah, there seems like a lag between, um, the police force and, and how we actually exist. But there always is this lag. Yeah. Huh? And, and I think, um, Abdul Malik Simon, for example, is a scholar who works a lot on global south, uh, cities, um, who in a book that I think is called From the City Oh, I can't le read that. It's too, it's standing too far away in my bookshelf. Um, for the city yet to come. Um, I think that's where he argued that is that he says, um, this attempt of the city as, say, as a state, 
no? the city as a um to so the city with a capital C to to organize and structure and and institutionalize the rhythms and the practices in the urban is always in contrast to that what emerges from the ground. And any global South city, it's staring you in the face that this state versus citizenship, citizenship dilemma is there. And I'm also thinking of a book by uh, Jim Scott called Seeing Like a State, where he argues that the the ways in which the state starts to think about classification that the state needs to classify the state needs to make legible no? the state needs to know who is who is entitled and who is not and has this and this always is in in tension with urban practices Yet, of course, with increasing social inequalities and more and more people living in extremely precarious conditions, also in European cities, due to various reasons, um, that that set of practices that is not seen, the unseen city, or the set of practices that cannot be categorized or cannot be made legible with the instrument that the state has, something that's extremely common in global South cities like Jakarta or Sao Paulo, or is now becoming more common in our cities. And that is and I think it's important for for us as academics or social scientists or social criticasters or I don't know, journalists, to realize that what is that this is not new. It's not a new phenomenon. It's just a phenomenon that has been determining urban life in a large part of the world, just not in our part. Yeah, I mean, I, I was sort of thinking about in how in Athens um, there was the uh, sort of state-run refugee camp that was a, apparently a nightmare. Like it was put on an old disused airport. Um, they had trouble... Uh, the refugees had no access to the city. Food uh, distribution was, was a huge problem. Um, and then, but then the anarchists started organizing refugee centers within the city in squats. And they're sort of like, uh, self-running and sustainable. And the people are able to be in the city so that they can look for work and so on and so forth. Um, so it seems like the, you know, the, um, uh, the people themselves, um, are able to sort of, um, figure out, uh, what works best for them, but the state has this very sort of, um, yeah, lazy way of approaching these things. And that has nothing to do with the book, anymore, <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, it, I didn't think it's that easy though, because states are not, you know, it's not like states are always there and they just happen to exist. They, they have emerged out of a need to collectivize risk and, um, to collectivize, to co collectivize the avoidance of risk and to collectivize forms of caring for others. Now there's a book called Care in Care of the State by Abraham Deswan, 1989, I think it is, is older, but in which he very clearly shows that this idea of the state the state is is a product of the need to care for others, and now we can criticize the state and say, ah, oh, the bureaucracy is too big, and blah 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 blah, and Greece doesn't function or whatever. You can find all sorts of arguments why the state, the state, there's no thing as the state, but why institutions that we understand to be the state, because there is no such thing, right? The state is an idea. So the the but the institutions that that are paid for by our taxes, if that's how we define the state, then. For the moment, only for the podcast, then, then the, 
then yeah, we can talk about why they don't do what they do, but those squads are also exclusionary. And there's a particular way in which even visually, visually the way in which squatters deal with the visuality of their projects. Um, so short anecdote, when I moved to Berlin, my boys, my twin boys were six and, um, no, sorry, four. And um, we arrived in the city and they said to me, Mama, why are the people always writing on the walls here? Well, and it was because of the left-oriented squat movement. Yeah. But, you know, so, but, so there's, there's this sense of, um, of representation and that has a... Um, I, I, I don't think that, that it's so easy. And I think there's a highly exclusionary level of... Uh, uh, of these forms of self-organizing too. And like I said, there's, there's always a, a form of exclusion in any form of community building, and that needs to be acknowledged. And I wouldn't necessarily think that the total lack of any democratic procedure and form of transparency and control in self-initiated self-self-self kind of mobilizations and is necessarily better, not as a type. It may work better as a practice, but I don't think we should say, oh, let's abolish the state and let people do everything themselves. I mean, that's what Trump wants eventually, right? I mean, it is, this is the very tricky thing about this because, and this is what fascinates me as a sociologist as well, is the, the difference between enabling agency and seeing what emerges as an urban fabric out of people's everyday practices themselves on the one hand, and yet the sort of, without making that into a model, that ignores forms of durable inequalities that are the result of broader processes and categorizations. And, and if we only say, oh, isn't it nice when people do it themselves? There's an area in Berlin where um, the police has told various um, people that, that we've interviewed in the context of a book that we did um, called Creating the Unequal City. That title is wrong, but it's <laughs> it should have been Doing the Unequal City or something, not Creating. But And, and we talked to people with African migration backgrounds uh, in the context of the projects who were told by the police that there were certain areas in Berlin where they better not find a house because, or an apartment because it was seen as concentrated areas of right-wing populism. That is bottom-up. Social movements. Yeah. That is, that is the same thing. So there is no value in people doing something themselves. Mm -hmm. Jewish people living in Poland in the end of the 19th century were being, no, yeah. beaded by self-initiated groups. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so when we're talking about community, there's always the sort of like, um, the marginalized, uh, the, the excluded. Um, you know, in America, one of the huge problems is that if you sort of enter, um, the criminal justice system, if you're imprisoned or whatever, you're not just sort of removed from your community. You're often moved like out of state and you're totally, uh, and they're, they're doing even more exclusionary as far as like, um, uh, no longer allowing in-person visits and that sort of stuff. Um, so how do we start to think about, um, reintegrating, um, the, these marginalized, whether they're being marginalized out of just sort of social isolation or they're being marginalized out of, um, uh, by an act of the state or, or, at, you know, because of this sort of, um, they belong to a, a uh, um, 
a, a population that is undesirable in, in some way uh, to the to the greater whole. Um, what kind of how do we think about community that starts to integrate these these people? Well, maybe as a political project we can, but as a as a conceptually, it's it's not it's not how it works. Right? There is no way of thinking community in a totally inclusive way, because there's always going to be. If it is about forms of process, processes of identification, then to identify always means to draw a border to what you're not. So um, I think I have this example in the book, someone that I took from Seru Bavel, I think is her name, um, of the, no, the, the burger and the cheeseburger and the salad burger. So there's always categorizations and there's no other way. Um, so there's no way of... But I think there's another theme that, that you're asking me about, which is the question of how do we, how do we think of marginalization? And I tend to see that in similar ways, I think, as, as authors like Herbert Gans or, um, from Colombia or Louis Wacan, who have been written, writing about marginalization as a form of, um, punishing the poor, if you want, a form of fitting with an ideology of the self-made man, fitting with an ideology of um, the neoliberal project of, of, of defining yourself through your own initiative and define that, and that not doing that is uh, needs to be punished, or that, that that's a hegemonic or or ideological understanding of what society is about that impacts those kinds of processes. So if you had to change that, you had to change the ideology, which is sort of, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't been to the States for a while, but sound like that guy there is not... Okay, so let's not talk about that. Um, but so there's one thing. Concretely, I think, um, if, if you were to move away from that political, contemporary political field, and if you would think about it in a more sort of abstracted way, then the, there's no possibility to not, to live together and have norms without moral, morally judging them, but have norms or have ideas about how social practices ought to be. We need, as we can only live together when we have those kind of practices when we have a shared understanding that we do things a certain way and we may do them multiple ways but there needs to be a common base that that we drive in the right side of the road if we start to so so on that very basic level then there's always going to be a definition of deviance so deviance is defined by those who do not apply to the rules and are being prosecuted or punished for not applying them and so a lot of what we do, which is not according to someone's rules or some norms or some laws, is not deviant because it doesn't, it's not being punished. It's only, st and that idea is, is a very basic principle that sociologists have been talking about ever since the times, times of Durkheim, that to think of a society of, of connections between people of a durable kind without principles of non, conformist behavior having consequences is really difficult to do. Which doesn't, is not to say that there should never be place for nonconformism because out of nonconformism emerges the new, right? The, the innovative. So what Simon says, for example, is I think very powerful when he writes about the stranger. He says the stranger is the person who comes today and stays tomorrow. 
It's not the person who comes today and leaves again, who stays tomorrow. And being the stranger allows you or allows this, this stranger in his, in his text. This stranger is the person who sees and questions that what is so obvious to everybody else. And this is what the great value, I think, is of all this mobility and all this kind of changes that we see is that these, exactly these norms that we need, even though we need them, doesn't mean that we need to have them the way we have them. Now we can still think about change. And the marginalized, in that sense, in the sense of the stranger of Simo, plays a very important role because it's this deviance, it's this up-normality, away from the norm, that actually shows us the very norm itself and allows us to talk about it. So to go back to your example, the fact that we do this thing or that the United States has this practice of putting people so far away and at the same time um, I had a student, um, Dennekamp is her last name, Nella Dennekamp, she did a master thesis, she actually made a documentary film on families of people imprisoned in New York State and it was about how this imprisonment is not just imprisonment of the guy who was in prison, but it's also imprisonment of the family in many ways. Not if the family gets punished. But there's also a literature, apparently, or a set of studies that shows that these connections are so important for life after prison. So if we think about, not about punishment as such, but as failures that people have done that then need to find their way in society again because it's cheaper for us, we don't have to morally judge it if it's cheaper to have people integrated in that way, then then that would be, there's a discussion there. And that can create new discussions about norms and the norms will eventually possibly change. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.